it's an important reminder because I think we bought into the devil's first lie and we keep trying to be God on our own. We keep trying to be God ourselves. We are beginning this new year with a series. You know why pastors do series of sermons? So that we know what we're going to preach on next week. It's true. It's so stressful when you don't do this. To go to your office on Monday morning and say, okay, now what? That can be a frightening, frightening moment. And Sabbath comes with great regularity. So that we just don't want to do that. So think, think longer term, Pastor, and say, okay, what are the things I might want to talk about, which I've already covered? And uh, what are the things that would be significant to our church? And how would we put that together in a, in a way that, uh, that would make sense? So this morning, as we uh, take on the first installment of our series on Daniel, where we'll be opening the book, guess what chapter we'll be in? The first one. So if you have your Bible with you, you might want to open to Daniel chapter 1. I'm going to touch on just a couple of verses in there. It's a good story. You can read it through in about five minutes, probably, or less. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and take, take it out and take a look at that. You can use your phone. You can use your iPad. You can use whatever you've got to get to, get to that. Um, we, have, we talked last week about living a God-directed life, and we talked about the precursors to the beginning of Daniel. We talked about two different kings faced by similar crises who faced them differently. We talked about Hezekiah, who faced the crises of having an army surrounding him, where he had nowhere to go. The army was much more powerful than he, from a much bigger, much more powerful country. And that king went to the house of God, sought out the the word of God, sought out the prophet of God, and God sent that king back home with his tail between his legs. We talked about a second king. This king faced the same thing, an army bigger than his, a country much more powerful than his, surrounding his city. But rather than go to God with his problem, he rejected the prophet God sent to him and literally cut the the scroll the prophet sent in pieces and burned it as it was read right in front of the prophet or right in front of the reader. Interesting. One faced the crisis, existential crisis, your life and death crisis, by turning to God. And he was seen through it. Now we also mentioned that that's not always true, right? Sometimes you face the crisis, you turn to God, and you go right through the crisis. We're going to cover that again in chapter 3. But I just want to remind you, the, the, the promise of God is not that you won't have a crisis, it's that you won't be alone in the crisis. So the first king got the answer that everybody wants, rescue. The second king rejected the answer that God had given him, surrender. And therefore, the second king faced the wrath of the army outside, and the first king got to see the power of God's authority. As we talk about Daniel today, understand that in 605 B.C., The first visit by Nebuchadnezzar at Jerusalem was met with a surrender after 18 months of that king surrounding the city and sieging it. (coughs) He came into the city, made them pay tribute. A great deal of, (coughs) excuse me, a great deal of the um, the emblems or implements from the sanctuary were given to him to pay him off so he'd leave. 
Basically, kings of the time were just like mob members, and he had to pay protection money. He surrendered. He took some of the king's relatives and family and what he considered sort of the the brightest, smartest, cutest, nicest looking people in town and took them with him. Daniel was in that group. Daniel was apparently handsome, smart, and somebody a king would pick out of a crowd and say, that guy's going with me. So Daniel made the first team. There will be three teams, three different groups that will be hauled off to Babylon. Daniel makes cut number one. Ezekiel makes cut number two. We're not really told who makes cut number three. But Daniel is in Babylon because he's been captured, taken there into exile by a foreign king. So you get the picture of where we're starting with Daniel. I wanted, I wanted to show you this picture. I've been thinking about this since I started thinking about living a life directed by God. That we need to consider how we mind the gap. Think about that. Now, you know what Mind the Gap is about, right? This is, in, this is in Great Britain, and it's in front of their subway trains because there's often a little gap between the edge of the, of the subway uh, platform and the car. And if you got your foot stuck in there or your heel stuck in there or just didn't pay attention and tripped over that, you'd be in miserable situations. So there's these signs everywhere. Mind the gap, mind the gap, mind the gap. It means just pay attention to that little separation between the platform and the car. Daniel is careful about minding the gaps in his life. Living a God-directed life often needs to call our attention to and often calls our attention to the gaps. It's the gap between our values and our actions. It's the gap between our stated purpose and our actual direction. It's the gap between what we know the scripture has revealed and what we actually do. Mind the gap. Watch out for those gaps in our lives. It's true of churches, true, too. It's churches, churches need to mind the gap between their mission and vision and direction and their model and expression and activity. Churches need to mind the gap of, between what they say they believe and what they actually do. We need to constantly be aware that this space between what we believe and what we do is the gap that throws people off about Christianity. It's the gap that throws us off as we're trying to follow after God. It's the gap that we have to pay attention to. And we'll come back to this idea a lot over the next few months. But I just wanted to start you out with Daniel's statement. It's chapter 1, verse 8. It's this little comment about who Daniel is and how he goes about his life. It simply says, Daniel purposed in his heart. Where did he purpose? In his heart. What was he doing? He was making a decision about something that was going on. He was deciding internally about some activity that he was going to do in the face of the crisis that was in front of him that day. Hezekiah, when he found that gap between between what was going on and what his needs were, he faced that crisis by making a decision to go, for God, go after God. Daniel, when he's faced with a crisis, it's not a huge issue in chapter 1. We'll get to it. it but he says, Listen, you know, there's a difference here between what I believe God has revealed to me and what I'm being asked to do. And therefore, I'm going to make a decision purposed in his heart to do something about that difference. Okay? 
So in the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. By the way, if you're a note-following person, there are some notes for this in your bulletin. And he besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. How did Jehoiakim end up being captured by Nebuchadnezzar? The Lord gave him to him. For years, prophets have been telling Israel, you need to get back to God. You need to, there's a gap between what you profess, what God's called you to do, what this nation's about, and what you're actually doing. And he said, you need to get back to God. You need to get back to God. You need to get back to God. And the prophets have been saying this about the northern kingdoms, and they didn't listen. They'd been saying it to the, north, to the southern kingdoms, and they weren't listening either. And so in 605... King Nebuchadnezzar comes, he faces Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim smart, gets smart, and he, he decides to give up, and he becomes a vassal, or uh, someone who pays tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now God had told Israel the Babylonians are coming, he had told Israel the Babylonians were being sent by him, he had told Israel that the Babylonians were his own hand, and that they should just surrender to them. But the Israelites will will rebel against them over the next 30 years, two more times, until it finally gets their city and their temple burned to the ground. It was never God's intent that Israel have to face all of that trauma. This was all of the exile that was going to happen if Israel surrendered to the will of God. This was it. This was all that was going to happen. A few hundred or a few thousand people were going to be taken off. Sort of the elite and the family of the king were going to be taken away to Babylon. And that was going to be it. They would be under the thumb of Babylon during the reign of Babylon. That would have been it. If they had surrendered to the will of God and accepted Babylon as God's hand, that would have been it. And Jerusalem would have stood. The temple would have never burned. These people would have never suffered a siege that lasted for months. They would have never suffered the horrible things that went on during their next two battles against this overwhelming king if they had just listened to the prophets. If they had just been listening to the word of God, God had been speaking to them, telling them things, and they were resistant to it. And as a result of their resistance, horrible things are in their future over the next 30 years. What's in your future over the next 30 years? If you're living a God-directed life, you're going to face difficulties. You're going to face crises. You're going to face issues. But if you're living a God-directed life and God is directing, he's reading to you from his word, you're, you're following after his heart, you're praying, you're seeking his will in things, you're seeking wise counsel from people who trust and follow God. If you're, in, if you're accustomed to surrendering yourself to the will of God and following after that understanding... The next 30 years promise to be within his will and promise to be guided and blessed and cared for by him. But if you're in the practice of resisting what God desires for your life, if you're in the, in the practice of ignoring the gap, if you're in the practice of pushing him away when he brings things to your attention, if that's the life you have laid out for the next 30 years, you're going to find yourself living a difficult life. The God-directed life is the blessed life. The God-directed life is the abundant life. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Israel chose to dig in their heels and fight against the will of God. And it caused the destruction of their city. It caused the captivity of tens of thousands of Israelites. And it caused the death of a similar number. 
Why? Too stubborn to surrender to God. Faith in God's sovereignty changes my relationship to my circumstances. Do you believe that? If, if, you are, if you have faith in the sovereignty of God and something is happening in your life and you say, Lord God, Almighty, King of heaven and earth, I surrender my desire, my interest, my will, my plans in these circumstances, it changes the way you face the circumstances. They're not as stressful. They're not as frightening. They're not as scary. These are opportunities for growth. They're opportunities for God to do something. They're opportunities for you to, to, to change or be transformed in the circumstances that surround you. You know when the plane is crashing? When your plane is crashing, you hop on a plane, you fly from here to New York, and somewhere over Kansas, the plane decides it's not going to fly anymore, it's going to hit the ground. It's coming down at about 400 miles an hour, your chances of survival are about this. When that plane is crashing, wouldn't you like to be able to say, hey, I'm walking with God, and the next thing I see is Jesus? Amen. Wouldn't you like to be in that situation? You can be in that situation. Living a God-directed life changes the way we understand our circumstances. We look up into the heavens and we say, God, you're on your throne and I believe that you are coming back again. I believe that you are the ruler of heaven and earth. I don't think you knocked this plane out of the air, but I know where I'm going when I die. And yet, nobody's, nobody's in the plane saying, I hope this plane crashes today. Nobody's sane is in the plane having that conversation. When it's going down, isn't it good to know where you're going when it's done? The last thing you might see is a a fiery ball coming down the fuselage of that plane, but the next thing you see is Jesus himself. It changes your understanding of your circumstances. Personal, emotional, financial. Crises of all kinds. Personal crises that are, that are health-related. Personal crises that are, are, that are related to the way I'm interacting with my family. Personal crises that are immediate, like an accident. All of those things change if you understand and are relating to God as the God of the universe and the God of your life, sovereign in your life, the ruler of heaven and earth, and you understand that he's got this. When the plane's going down, don't you want to be able to say, I'm good with God. He's got me. He's got this. Next thing I see is Jesus. So the, the, the establishment of the rules for these captives begins to be explained here in the beginning of Daniel. And we're told that they're invited into a, a relationship of education. They're, they're invited into the king's palace. And they're given the... The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies. Get that word. Catch the word delicacies. Understand that he is not giving them the food of prisoners. He's giving them the food of guests. You are guests in the king's house. Now, imagine 605 B.C. A a, a few thousand of these people are hauled off into Babylonian captivity. They're taken into service of the king and they're treated like guests of the king. That would have been all the punishment on Israel had Israel surrendered to the will of God. Think about it. This group of people, they're not going to be home. 
They're going to be gone for 70 years, according to Jeremiah. They're going to be gone for a long time. And, and, and yet, their punishment is to live in the house of the king and be treated like his guests. Sound scary to you? It doesn't sound like a bad punishment to me. In fact, it kind of feels like God's kind of going light on these people. They've been idolatrous for years, for generations they've been idolatrous. And what's God's big punishment? What's the big end game in the threat? We're going to haul you off to Babylon, where you're going to be treated to four-star treatment and the best food the king can provide for you. That's your punishment. Your punishment will be on a cruise for the next 70 years. What is it, 700 count thread minimum? Thread count? A thousand. A thousand. These guys are probably living better when they get to the king's house than they were living before. That was God's planned punishment. If you don't understand this, you outweigh the statements of the prophets. God knew that they were going to reject him and not surrender to him. He knew what was coming. He knew that there would be a siege and the temple would be destroyed. And he knew that all these horrible things were coming. And he he, he placed those very, very strongly out in front of them as warnings. This is what will happen if you don't surrender to my will. I sent the Babylonians because of your idolatry. Stop the idolatry. Surrender to my will And your friends that are off in Babylon, well, they're going to get to eat the king's table. They're going to get to be treated to the four-star hotel available in Babylon. By the way, it's probably nicer than the one in Jerusalem. Days in Hilton. This is what happens when you surrender to God. Even his punishment feels like blessings. Because when you understand whose hand is delivering that correction, you understand his motivation, and you feel the blessing of being directed in his path. The king appointed them daily provisions of the king's delicacies and the wine which, and get the word, he drank. They were treated the way he was treated. We've taken this passage and we've often said, well, look at all the horrible things he was probably eating. Yeah, but let's not forget, it's the stuff he was eating. We'll get to that, okay, they're not wanting to eat that stuff, but understand, he's not, being, he's not giving them bread and water. They're not getting gruel to eat. They're not getting some kind of uh, rice soup. They're getting the king's own food. This is the way a king treats his royal guests. That was God's original punishment for Israel. Had they surrendered. Had they surrendered. Not to Babylon, but to him. And Babylon as a result of it being from him. Israel's circumstances would have changed as a whole had they recognized that they came from the hand of God. The prophets had been shouting it at them. Ezekiel would join the chorus of Jeremiah here over the next 20 years. Israel, you should understand. Israel, you should understand. Israel, you should understand. The Babylonians have been sent by God. The Babylonians have been sent by God. The Babylonians have been sent by God. 
Daniel looks at the king's table. And he looks across at what's being offered to him. And he says, hmm, this buffet isn't working for me. It's all beautiful and everything, but uh, I don't know. This is not, I'm not finding anything here I can eat. There's, 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 you know, it's just, it's, it's unclean. It's been offered to idols. I just don't feel right doing this. And Daniel feels the gap between what he's accustomed to doing under the will and guidance of God and what he's being asked to do by this king. Is the king locking him in a prison, giving him one choice? Nope. The king is giving him a banquet full of choices. And Daniel's looking at that banquet full of choices and saying, these things have been offered to idols. These things are unclean. I just can't do it. Can't do it. He purposes in his heart not to be defiled by the king's gracious offering of delicacies. Sometimes we look at stuff like that and we say, oh, they're being so nice. They're being so nice. Okay. Daniel purposes in his heart. Now, I want you to understand, there's four of them, apparently, that do this. And there are thousands of them present. Four of them who say, can't do it. It's unclean. It's been offered to idols. They just can't do it. Purposes in his heart to recognize the gap between what he believes the will of God is and what's in front of him. And he minds that gap. The attempt by King Nebuchadnezzar is life-transforming assimilation. Number one, they're taken from their home. Snatched out of your home, taken over there and dropped here. Taken from their home. Number two, they're resettled with the king's servants. The resettlement here is to settle them among people who are already serving the king, already know the king, and already are following after the king. So the influence of the group they're being resettled with is pretty solid as far as the king's side of the issue is concerned. Number three, they're given the king's food. They're changing everything for them, changing their atmosphere, changing their relationships, even changing their diet. And that cha- those transformations are designed to make an impact on these people. Number four, they're renamed. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach get new names? They're given Babylonian names. And number five, they're re-educated for three years. Think about what you're doing. If at the end of three years, you're taken from your home, settled in a new home, you're resettled among the king's servants, your food has changed, your name has changed, and your education has changed, what happens to you at the end of that three years? You're transformed. You're changed. You are more Babylonian than you are Israel. You are more a follower of the king of Nebuchadnezzar than you are a child of Abraham. They're not doing this by accident. They're doing this on purpose. This is designed to produce the Stockholm uh, reaction. This is designed to produce the Stockholm syndrome. This is designed to make them favorable toward the king. This is designed to make them trustworthy as rulers in the Babylonian empire. This is designed to get their head right so that he can send them back to Israel and get Israel's head right. You see, the way kings did this is they would remold the people they took. They took young people because young people, frankly, you all, are easier to mold. You know why? Your heads are still full of mush. (laughs) Face the facts. Your frontal lobe of your brain, guys, look at me, guys. Eyes front, guys. Your frontal lobe of your brain 
isn't even fully functional till you're about 28. So gentlemen, if you're not 28, shut up and listen to your parents. <laughs> Ladies, before you think you're all that smart, yours isn't working till you're about 23 or 24. Now don't look at your brother and go, see, I told you I was smarter than you, because you're not. Shut up and listen to your parents. Is that clear? That did not sound like a kid. Seriously, guys, understand, they took young people because young people were malleable. And they could make these changes in their life. Yank a kid out of his home and take him somewhere else, you transform a lot about that kid. You put him among people who are going to influence him towards a a particular destination, you're going to change that kid. Change his environment. Change the things he's used to. Change even his food. Rename that kid. Re-educate that kid. You are going to have a different kid when you get done. Three years later, the idea was these people could be trusted to be sent back to Jerusalem or anywhere else in the Persian Empire or in the Babylonian Empire. And that empire would be under the control of the king because these guys were under the control of the king. But Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel decided to put a little resistance forward. And I don't think he did it just to be resistant. I think he did it because of conviction. I think God said, Daniel, let's, let's take a stand right here. Let's draw a line in the Babylonian sand and let's take a stand. There's a gap between what they're asking you to do and what I've guided you through for generations. Let's take a stand here. Daniel purposed in his heart purposed in his heart not to be defiled by the king's delicacies. Choices that transform circumstances often begin small. This is not the biggest decision there is in the world. The decision to follow Jesus or not, that's the biggest decision there is in this world. That is the single most significant decision you will ever make in your life. This is not the biggest decision. If I were looking at the core issues of Christianity or Adventism, this one would not make my core set. But what it does is it stands against one of those five things the king was trying to do. You couldn't help being removed and replaced in a new place. You couldn't help being placed in bunkhouses with the other king's servants. You couldn't really help having your name changed, although, you notice Daniel never is called by his, by his Babylonian name. His friends are, but he's never called by his Babylonian name. I don't know if that's just a respect issue from the king. He stood there and, got, and the king said, we're calling you by your regular name because that's good enough for me. There are several things in there that he cannot change. He cannot resist. But he looks at the things and he says, you know, at this banquet table, I can change this. I can have an impact on this. I can say, I want something else. Small decisions can sometimes have drastic impacts on your circumstances. I was sailing from Hawaii to San Francisco. It's a long trip. If you decide to do it, you need a month. You go a thousand miles north. And when you finally get far enough to get out of the giant, tropical, high-pressure system that sits out in the middle of the Pacific where there's no wind, you finally get far enough that you think you're around that and past that, you hang a right. And you're going to hit the coast of California if you do it right. 
you're going to hit Oregon, Washington, maybe Alaska if you do it wrong. We started traveling toward California. Now, we did not have GPS navigation. Yes, I am that old. We did not have GPS navigation. We couldn't just call down a satellite and say, here's where we are. So we did it the old-fashioned way, the way they'd been doing it for a thousand years. We looked through a sextant. We took a sighting of the sun as it went overhead, and we went to a, to a book, and we calculated our location doing actual math. And then we went to, the, went to the map, we marked our place, and we drew a line from where we were yesterday to where we are today. When it was cloudy or rainy and we couldn't see the sun, it might be three, four, five days of, we think this is where we are and that's where we were. One day, we made a mistake in the math. I did not make this mistake. <laughs> I am likely to make mistakes in math, but I didn't make this one. The engineer among us made this mistake. Yep, engineers can make mistakes. It was a simple one number difference. One degree, one degree of heading. We thought we were here, and the mistake that was made in our course was one degree off. A simple one degree. And so for the next 24 hours, instead of heading for the coast of California, we were headed for the Aleutians. Just enough of a turn, small turn. But out in the middle of the Pacific, if we had stayed on that course, we would have come out in Alaska somewhere wondering where the Golden Gate Bridge was. And so if you were to look at this map, we have this great picture. There's actually a movie of this trip. And that one of the scenes in this movie is a, is, a, is a shot of this map as it's being developed. Each day you take a shot and that gets added into a, a clip that is showing the entirety of the motion. So you go north, it's easy, you stay on north. Keep going north. And then you hang a right and you start on your course towards San Francisco. And as we're coming back, as you get to the middle of the Pacific out there, there's this, we're traveling towards San Francisco, traveling towards San Francisco, and then it goes like this. Because a one degree choice for 24 hours led us way off course, 100 miles off course. And then we had to make another adjustment to get us back on course for 100 miles. Small decisions can make big impacts over a lifetime. Recognize the importance of some of your small decisions. Mind the gap. The gap doesn't have to be huge. In fact, in reality, if the gap were huge, there'd be no sign. Because you wouldn't be that stupid. It's the small gaps that tend to distract us or we miss. It's the small gaps that we, we just think we can step over. It's the small gaps that catch the heel of your spikes, ladies. It's the small gap that catch the toe of your shoes, guys. It's the small gaps that usually get us. It's not the big ones because the big ones are obvious. Mind the gap. Be aware of the gaps between your convictions and your actions. Be aware of the gaps between your values and your decisions. Beware of the gaps between where you want to be and where you're actually headed. Beware of the gaps. Mind the gaps. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and goodwill with the chief 
of the eunuchs. Where's Daniel? He's in Babylon. He's in exile. He's in captivity in Babylon. He's far away from where he wants to be. He's far away from what he thought he was going to do. He's far away from from where he thought he would grow up. Jerusalem was his home. Jerusalem was the place he would grow up. His life was laid out in front of him. He was a noble young man in Jerusalem. Apparently a noble, young, attractive man in Jerusalem. Life was going to go well for him. And then this. But even when he's in exile, God is still moving. God is still active. Do you know that we're kind of in exile? We're in exile caused by sin. Separated from God because of sin. Adam and Eve made the choice. We didn't. Their little decision about the fruit stand of the devil seems to have taken us way off course. And we are in exile. We're separated from home. We're not where we belong. We're not where we should be. We're not where God intended for us to be. We're in this weird spot in between. And if we can recognize that God didn't toss us out there and leave us alone. Remember, there are those people who believe there is no God at all. And I don't know what they do when they face crises and difficult circumstances. There's people who think there's no God, no, no interaction from God. There's nothing to even be out, nothing out there but the darkness. And there's people who believe that God just... Set this thing up. He made himself a little watch, wound it up, and said, let's see what that'll do. And he doesn't really care about us. He's off in the universe tending to other business while we just wind the clock down. Be careful about letting those slip into your mind. Because a disinterested God isn't caring about you. A disinterested God doesn't, doesn't worry about you day to day. A disinterested God doesn't know the hairs on your head. He doesn't know each sparrow that falls. He doesn't know your answers to your prayers. He doesn't know your family's names. He doesn't know your name. He doesn't know where you are, what you're doing, or what you care about. A disinterested God is a bad thing to get in your head. Daniel's far away from home, and he's out there in captivity. And God brings the chief of the eunuchs, under his influence and influences him favorably towards Daniel. Because God is active, even though Daniel was a captive. The chief of the eunuchs, so Daniel says, I'm not eating it. I don't want to eat that stuff. Give me something else to eat. The chief of the eunuchs, and there's a long paragraph there in between those three little dots. The chief of the eunuchs says to Daniel, in essence, in, in essence, I fear the Lord, the king. You would endanger my head. If, you, if things don't go well for you, if you look bad, if you look sickly, if you don't look as good as everybody else, Daniel, I like you, you're my friend, I care about what happens to you, but I care more about dying. So no. So Daniel actually appeals to someone else. He appeals to the chief steward. And he lays out a proposal that's a little bit risk-free. I want to say something to you for a minute. Some Christians are obnoxious when it comes to dealing with other people. Some of us are obnoxious about this stuff. We go into someone's house and we treat what's on their counter like we're going to turn into a stone if we look at it. Be careful. Be gracious. Be a reasonably decent guest. Be a good member of your family. Be a good member of your work associations. You don't have to throw things in people's faces every time you see them. You really don't. 
You know, you're, 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 the, the person in the cubicle next to you breaks out the ham sandwich. You don't have to do this. If it bothers you that much, go eat somewhere else. Be a gracious follower of Jesus who came to this stinky little planet and took on our stinky little bodies to rescue us from ourselves. Amen. Imagine what that was like. And then you won't worry so much about Limburger in the pew next to you. Daniel decides to set up a trial that's pretty risk-free for the steward. He says, please test your servants for 10 days. How long? 10 days. And let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined. Then he says, this is Daniel's big risk. This is a statement of faith in who God is. As you see fit, so deal with your servants. Give us 10 days. We'll eat nothing but vegetables and water for those 10 days. Everybody else can have whatever they want from the king's delicacies. Just the four of us, test subjects. Let us eat, whatever, let us eat the, the things we want. Let them eat what they want. And then you bring us all together and take a look at us and see what you see. Now, there's a lot of questions about this. I've heard people say, well, yeah, these Israelites weren't used to eating uh, the kinds of things that they were going to be eating. Unclean foods, drinking lots of wine, eating really rich food. These guys probably weren't eating like that in Jerusalem. And so they went to the king's buffet. And you know, how it's, you know what that's like. You've been on a five-day cruise. You've been in a ten-day cruise. After the first couple of days, three, four days, you're going back to that buffet and you're going, ah. first day you go to that buffet and you get an extra plate. After three or four days of that, you're going, okay, there's just, you know, how much whipped cream can I put on something? <laughs> you go to the midnight chocolate buffet. Midnight chocolate buffet. Sounds wonderful until you get there and you realize it's midnight and you've now eaten 4,000 calories of chocolate. <laughs> Some people say, well, you know, they ate all that stuff and they, they just looked bad because they ate all that stuff. That is a statement of a lack of faith in God. Oh, we've got to make an excuse why these other guys didn't look good. Pfft. Look at this. At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh. Do you know any fat vegans? That's what they were eating. Better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portions of the king delica- king's delicacies. Who should be fatter in flesh? The guy with the whipped cream canister, right? Who is fatter than flesh? The guy eating carrots. That's a miracle from God. That is a miracle from God. They're not only healthier, they're fatter in flesh. How else were they going to be able to tell? They can't look inside their digestive tract and say, ooh, those guys don't look like they're doing so well. Their digestive tract is all backed up. These guys are just passing everything right on through. They're good. They can look at that. They're fatter in flesh. They're kind of chubby looking guys. Ten days as vegans, these guys get chubbier. Try it. You might like it. (laughs) God blesses them and gives a miraculous outcome to them because they were looking at that little gap. They were looking at the gap between what God had called them to do and what the king was asking them to do, and they decided to take a stand on the thing that they could take a stand on. You can't change where you are. You can't change the circumstance of who you're bunking with, but you can decide, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what you're going to eat. 
So they picked the thing they could control. Ask God for his leadership. Ask for a, a trial that wouldn't cost the eunuch his head. And in ten days, God blessed them. In ten, ten days, God took care of them. Ten little days. And they were fatter on carrots. I love that picture. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. God remains active as long as we remain interested in his action. God remains active in our lives as long as we remain interested in that action. You keep following, he keeps leading. You stop following, he stops and tries to keep you moving. You keep following, he keeps leading. You keep following, he keeps leading. You keep following, he keeps leading. When you stop following, he stops with you to get you back on track in the direction he's trying to get you to go. You're not making any progress if you're not following. You're not making progress if you think you're leading because you're not. You don't even know where you're going. Or maybe you do. If you keep following, he'll keep leading. Again and again and again. When it came time for the oral exams, Nebuchadnezzar the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Stop for a second. I have heard preachers again say this was because of what they were eating. Okay, your food does make an impact on your brain. But can we just recognize that God had his hand on these four guys? Can we please recognize that we don't need to deny the miracles of God because we're making good choices? God has his hand on the Bible, says they were blessed by God. Can we accept that as what the Bible is saying? They were blessed by God. They made good choices about their food, and that probably made it easier for God. But let's not make this passage about food. Food is a secondary issue in this passage. This passage is about God laying his hand on some people who made some choices to follow after him. That choice happened to be in the arena of food, but that is not the singular reason for this passage to exist. This passage exists to tell us these men were faithful to God. Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. A God-directed life in exile for 66 years. And in the first 30 years, he saw his nation resist God. In the first 30 years, he saw one king and then another turn away from what God was trying to do. In the first 30 years, he saw captives come back from Israel two times. And last time the captives came back from Israel with the last good things left in the sanctuary and with the news that the city, the wall, and the sanctuary had been destroyed. Unnecessarily. And Daniel continues to serve two more kings for the last 30 years. You can serve God in difficult circumstances. You can serve God 
when it appears that the people you're working for are running in counter purposes to the will of God. You can serve God in whatever circumstances you find yourself. Find the gap. Pay attention to the differences between what you say you believe and what you're actually doing. Pay attention to the differences between the values that you know are revealed from the character and the word of God and what you're actually experiencing. Mind the gap and the choices you're making that are leading in a direction that isn't going where you want to go. Mind the gaps. It's not big things usually. It's often very small things that have dramatic impacts on our circumstances. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to coast. It's so easy to just think that we're cruising along without making choices. I pray that you would help us because the influences all around us the place we live, the choices in front of us, so many of them would affect the core of our being, the core of our values, the core of our morals, if given half a chance. Help us to pull back from those things that would lead us away from you and instead to choose a God-directed life. In Jesus' name, amen.